Hey, this is Connecticut Voice Podcast with Kyone Wolf. I'm Kyone Wolf. Back when I recorded my conversation with Kimora Harrington, she brought up the old gaze. How they're these shoulders that we stand upon as we become shoulders for other people to stand upon. We talked about how it's as important to listen to the young people on the LGBTQIA spectrum as it is to listen to those who have seen some things in our history. Which brings us to Mel Thomas. Mel is a singer, a pianist, a philosopher, an activist, an educator, an organizer, a playwright, and an old gay. We recorded this conversation over the course of three hours at his apartment in southern Connecticut, and you should know that it definitely features profanity and adult themes. I start this conversation by asking, where does someone like Mel Thomas come from? I was born in Hartford, February 22, 1941. I've been around for a long time. I don't think I heard anything about a homosexual until I was maybe in the latter part of elementary school when I overheard talk about a woman that an aunt of mine had rented a room to and uh, they discovered that she was, quote, a bulldagget. And yet, for some reason, I kind of knew. I, I kind of knew. I don't know why. But my first experience came when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. I had this friend, and we were always talking about sex, like boys do, and we were always talking about this girl and that girl and this girl. And one day he came to me and said that he had had sex. Well, I got all excited and everything with who? Went through all the girls' names that were, you know, in the neighborhood. And after exhausting them, you know, he told me, Pete. And I said, Pete? Well, I wanted to know all about this. Bobby and I ended up going to my bedroom that day and experiencing, you know, what this thing was all about. We didn't look upon what we were doing as being gay or we didn't see ourselves as queers or faggots, you know, because we didn't fit the stereotypical image. Uh, neither one of us were, you know, flamboyant. We weren't effeminate, anything of this sort. We continued to talk about girls and everything. So, you know, that was it. Do you think your parents suspected anything? She never said anything. But I think my mother did. Because for the most part, I played with the little girls. And my mother was always trying to talk me into playing with uh, the boys, uh, the other boys who like to go out and, and play football and baseball and all that stuff. And I had no interest in football. And no, no. Uh-uh. The only thing that I was interested in at that age was music. I started taking piano lessons when I was in the fifth grade, I guess. You know, that was it. I, had, I just had no interest in sports. And it was around the same time, I know, when I was in high school, when I joined the band and I started playing music professionally. What'd you play? We played rhythm and blues. Over the years, we really got into uh, Motown. The band was making money, but not that much, you know. Uh, So I had gotten a job, played in the band part-time, 
And I remember there was this one guy in particular uh, at this shop that I was working at. He had me figured out, even though I hadn't figured me out yet. Mm. You know, he had me figured out. I think he was probably gay himself. How did you know that he had you figured out? Oh, there would be uh, times when he would just come out point blank and call me queer, you know, mm. something of How this sort. How did that feel? Um, it was embarrassing and it, it felt like he had discovered the truth about me that I didn't want to face. I just had a hard time, you know, saying, well, this is who I am. And it was primarily due to the way uh, gay people were stereotyped back mm -hmm. then, you know. I, I did not fit right. that, that thing, you know. And the way gay people were presented, we were very effeminate hated women, we, we went cruising in, you know, restrooms and all that stuff. I didn't do any of that. I didn't hate women, you know, and, th and that was it. Eventually, I ended up getting married. To a woman? Yep. I did that two times, you know. I figured, all right, well, now that I'm married and, you know, have a kid on the way and everything, I'm safe. I've proved to everyone that I'm not gay, and uh, I've even proved it to myself, you know. So maybe those trysts you had as a young person, they were no more than trysts and curiosity. Yeah, no big deal. Uh, uh, curiosity. It was a fad. Yeah. yeah. It was a fad and everything. Somehow or another, I had heard about a gay bar, and uh, the band that I was playing in, uh, we were playing at this place called the Downstairs Coffee House, and diagonally across the street was uh, a bar called the Trumbull Inn. I don't know how different ones in the band had heard about it, but someone pointed out the fact that this was a gay bar. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So even when I was married, I went by there once, you know, twice, out of curiosity. This place wasn't that far from where I worked, so I would slide by there, and that was it. A guy had even tried to pick me up, but I was married, and uh, you know, that's it. No. My wife and I got a divorce. I was dating this woman who was attending the Hart School of Music. I was still in denial about being gay because I didn't fit that stereotypical image. And it wasn't necessarily at that point in time a life that was available to you that, in, in, on the whole. Like, of course, you could go into gay bars and you could see it, or maybe you could see it now and then, but like as a human being living a life that's out the way that you have been, it just wasn't no. a oh, possibility. No. no, and truthfully, I didn't have the time because mm -hmm. I was still in the band. But anyhow, I got married a second time, realized the day after we got married, I'm lying up there in bed now with my second wife, and these thoughts are going through my head. What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> okay. We got married in May of 69. That following month, all hell broke out in Stonewall. Now there were all sorts of things on TV about homosexuality. And there was this one documentary that I watched, and they were interviewing different ones. 
none of them fit me until they interviewed this guy who was, uh, he looked like an office worker. He had on a jacket, suit, tie, you know, that whole bit. Not uh, an overly masculine man, but he was the first one that I could identify with. I'm saying, no. Well, knowing that this marriage wasn't going to work, anyhow, there's no way in hell I was spending the rest of my life with this woman, I decided, okay, you know, let me go to New York and try this thing out, you know. In the documentary, they had talked about 42nd Street. Well, I really didn't know New York, you know. Anyhow, I picked up a New York Times, and there was this little tiny ad about the size of a postage stamp, a good-sized postage stamp, that read Triple X Male Film Festival. Walked around, you know, because God forbid if anyone should see this little kid from Hartford, Connecticut, walking into this theater, you know. Finally, when the coast looked relatively clear, I darted into the theater. And uh, while I'm standing there waiting for my eyes to adjust to the dark, I'm being groped in the front and the back, you know. And the first thought that goes through my head is, you know, this is the place. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> this better be the place. <laughs> That's it. This, this is the place, man. You know, this is where I want to be. I met this guy, Ron, uh, there in the theater. We uh, went to his place. And uh, then I uh, came home, and that was it. But my second wife and I had split when I contacted Ron. Uh, he'd given me his number, and I'm calling him now. And you calling him from Hartford? Yeah. So that's long distance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had the money. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you see it on the bills, you know? Yeah, I don't no. know if she saw the bills. Right. Or... After that, uh, of course, I had, you know, somehow or another heard about other gay bars in the Hartford area. And uh, I was telling Ron how I was having a difficult time getting to know people. And he just told me, he said, well, just keep on going. He says, keep on going. He says, eventually, he says, you know, they'll get used to you being there and everything. And, and that was it, which I did. And uh, I remember one year I received something like 11 or 12 invites for New Year's Eve parties. So I became really popular. These days, I feel like at least kids in this area of the world are getting these messages about it's okay to be you, be authentic. Mm -hmm. you know, if you're on the spectrum, that's great. We love you for you, which is sort of where we'd like to end up, right? Mm -hmm. But back in those days, the messages you were getting were don't talk about this. This is not right. If you're gay, that means you're effeminate yeah, and you're promiscuous. <laughs> so did you experience... And also as a black person, did you experience the, I imagine, sort of double whammy of internalized homophobia and internalized racism? Did they overlap? Did they, is that what it was I like for you? I think internalized racism, internalized homophobia, I've definitely had issues on both sides. When I started going to the bars, for the most part, I was the only black one there, you know. At that time, 
there were probably less than 10 black dudes that were going to the bars. And I have to say black, I don't mm -hmm. think there were any Hispanics going to the bars then. So back then, yeah. Uh, and then when I would see rejections and things of that sort, you know, a lot of times I took it personally as, you know, well, they're doing this because they're not into black guys. Sometimes that was the case. Other times it wasn't. Then I actually found out years and years later that there was other guys who approached me, who didn't approach me, just because they thought I might reject them. But yeah, there, there, there were definitely issues of internalized homophobia and racism. You know, after coming out, I came out, like I said, in October of 69. Well, that whole following decade is always very hazy to me, you know, because I did a lot of drinking, <laughs> smoked a lot of pot, but um, towards the end of the 70s, I met this guy, and he was like the one long-term relationship with a guy that I'd ever had. Both of us loved to drink. I turned him on to pot and poppers, you know. But we both loved to drink, and he, it was his idea for us to go to an AA meeting one time. He was familiar with them. He had been in the past, and he thought, well, maybe we should go. I ended up uh, going into treatment. I, I opted for going into treatment. When I got out of treatment, I joined this group called Black and White Men Together. They changed it around to Men of All Colors Together, uh, Connecticut. But it was as a result of that, joining that group, that I saw the need for a support group for gay men of African descent. And that's when I formed um, that group, okay? I was still working at Travelers. I remember one day uh, I was walking down the hallway and it occurred to me, the thought occurred to me that, you know, that there were gay men dying from AIDS and it was like nobody gave a shit. And things just started falling into place. Um, the company was downsizing and they offered me this they, they were offering employees, not just me, but employees, you know, this fabulous retirement package, which I took advantage of. Next thing I know, I'm offered a position to work full time as an openly gay black outreach worker providing prevention education uh, for, uh, you know, HIV and AIDS to uh, gay men of color. One of the things that surprised me was when I would go into places like black barbershops that have history, you know. <laughs> black barbershops are an institution. So for me to go in and ask if I could leave condoms and put up, you know, leave brochures, some of which were obviously, you know, for gay men, I thought for sure I was going to get a lot of flack, and yet I didn't, you know, I, I didn't get any flack. And sometimes I would go back uh, 
few days later just to see if they had taken them down or something. And some of them, you could tell somebody had taken a few, but um, they were still there, you know. So as a result of my work with HIV, you know, and AIDS, somehow or another, somewhere along the line, I was labeled the leader of the black gay community. Congratulations. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Who elected me? Okay. <laughs> you know. So, you know, as I'm sitting up here talking to you about it and everything, there are lots and lots of things. There are tons of things that I've done. And yet, for whatever reason, my attitude is one of, and no big deal. You know, mm -hmm. it's just no big deal. Um, but that's the way I look at it, you know. I mean, yeah, I've done a lot of things, and that, that's cool. I feel really blessed, you know, that I was able to do that, you know. But uh, now I'm on to other things. My newest love is writing, primarily short stories related to uh, the GLBT community. One thing I wanted to ask was, in my interview with Kamara Harrington, she was talking about the old gays. Mm-hmm. And you are an old gay. Mm -hmm. When you look at the way life is now mm -hmm. in Connecticut, because yeah. it's going to be a different conversation if we were in Alabama or mm -hmm. Mongolia. But in Connecticut, in this era, when you look at how far we've come and how not far we've come, mm. how are you feeling about the LGBTQIA plus community? And and where we are in our history. Are you satisfied? Are you... No. <laughs> no, I'm not satisfied because of the fact that we now have so many rights. You know, we've, we've made so many um, uh, advances that we can just now, you know, sit back and relax. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. What are you afraid is going to happen on the whole, like to our on community? On the whole? Just because you have your rights today, I mean, we see this a lot in different communities. Uh, just because you have something today, don't think that they can't take it away. Do you think most young people especially think, well, we've got them, they can't take them away? Yeah, that, 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 that we've got these rights and, and you can't take them away. You know? But they can. And yes, they can. So that's, you know, one of the things that, as an older gay, that really concerns me. The other thing that comes to mind is, as a black man, uh, I can't hide my blackness unless I try to go out there and do something freaky, you know. I cannot freaky. hide my blackness, you know. So therefore, I said, I would challenge you to wear your colors, your rainbow colors, the way I wear my blackness. So is there a fear that as we progress in society, as equal rights come and hopefully stay, that we may be deluded if we're not waving that flag, we're not showing off the fact that we're on this spectrum, that then it may make it seem like we're invisible again? Yeah, exactly. There are those who just want to simply blend in, you know. Like that's the success. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a success, you know. You blend in and, and now, you're uh, accepted. Well, not quite Batman, you know. <laughs> I'm still black, 
okay? And don't sit up here and tell me, well, the black movement and the gay movement are two and the same. Well, they are, but they're not, okay? And when you think about the success of, you know, we've had a black president, therefore racism's over. Right. Clearly not. No. And so, oh, you, you, have, you gay people, you people on this LGBTQIA plus spectrum have equal marriage rights currently, mm-hmm. then you're all done. Right. Case closed, there's no more mm-hmm. homophobia. Well, there certainly not is. Not quite, baby. Okay. Sorry, sorry to tell you, right? No, no, that, that's not the reality. Um, I mean, there are still neighborhoods here in Connecticut, New Haven, Hartford. What? There's still neighborhoods you better not go in there wearing, uh, you know, holding your partner's hand. Not advisable. And, of course, I've been doing this for years. Once you get to my age, you can get to the point where you're kind of used to shit, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's it. What does success look like? Like when you go 10 years down the road, 100 years from now, like what does the world look like to you if we've what would been I like successful? to see it like? Yeah. Okay. 100 years down the road, 10 years, five, next year. I would like to walk into a high-end store where they have socks for $50 a pair and not have someone immediately eyeballing me with suspicion. Well, and, holding your husband's hand. Right, <laughs> right. It was really funny. I had a date there a couple of nights ago. This old man, old people still date. You can put a <laughs> thing there about that, yeah. That'll be the subtitle of That's this whole it. interview. Old people still date. Old gay black old men gay. still date, all right? <laughs> or never count me out. But, <laughs> yeah. I had a, a date there the other day. We went to see uh, Rocket Man, and uh, he dropped me off here in front of the building, and uh, we gave each other a little slight touch on the lips, and, you know, that was it. But what I thought was so fantastic, he went down to the end of the row, came back, and I was just sitting outside, you know, taking advantage, enjoying the weather and everything, and he drove by, and there's this neighbor of mine sitting on the next bench over, and I don't even think she noticed it, but he had rolled down his window and he was blowing me kisses. <laughs> and I blew him one back, you know. And um, it would be cool to be able to do that and not be the least bit concerned about the reaction of others. No one said anything. I'm not concerned with somebody beating me up, anything of this sort. I guess what I'm really saying is that it would really be nice for that same scenario to happen without me feeling as though people are watching. That it's a thing. If it were a girl, if it were a woman, and the same thing happened, I'd have done the same thing but not given it another thought. Is there... Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to talk about? Uh, When so many people talk about the homophobia that's in the uh, black community, now, eh, that's that's, that's not true, you know. It exists, but no, no more than it does in any other community, okay? And even with the churches where so many people are really really ready to point the finger at the black church. With some of them, yeah, with some of them, but not all, not all, no. 
Well, Mel Thomas, thank you for talking with me. And thank you for the interview. I'm flattered, okay? <laughs> You're welcome. Really? It was cool. Thanks for listening to Connecticut Voice Podcast with Kyone Wolf. If you like the show and you want us to grow, subscribe to it. And please share this episode on your social medias. Also, leaving us a review really helps the algorithm gods float us to the top. And if you have someone who you think would be awesome on this podcast, email me, podcast at ctvoicemag.com. And of course, check out Connecticut Voice Magazine for more great interviews and photos. It's a quarterly magazine, and I love how this podcast and the magazine really complement each other. You can check them out and sign up to get your free subscription at ctvoicemag.com. This podcast is produced by me, Kyone Wolf. My production company is at kyonewolf.com, where you can see all the other shows and goodies I've got for you. You can sign up for my newsletter. Find me on the Twitters and the Instas at Kyone Wolf, on the Facebooks at Kyone Wolf Productions, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Wolf. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.